We are going to be studying the book of James over the next couple of months, hopefully moving our way through most of the text together. And the question uh, that I hope the book of James can help us answer is, how do we develop faith that is complete, faith that's well-rounded, faith that's holistic? How do we develop faith that's complete? I think I grew up in a generation of kids that at least most of my peers and I watched a lot of TV, and we watched a lot of early morning cartoons. I don't know what your household was like as a kid, but, but often the TV was on in, in my house before school, and there were these, these cartoons on. And of course, we were, we were fixed to the TVs, but part of what was a kind of a regular piece of those cartoons were the ads that came in between the cartoons. And knowing their audience, I think a third, maybe a half of those advertisements were for breakfast cereals, right? Lots of new breakfast cereals. And I grew up in an age where it wasn't a good breakfast cereal unless there was a cartoon character on the front of the box and tons of sugar in the cereal, right? Like Honey Smacks and Cookie Crisp. I mean, we had chocolate chip cookies for breakfast, Count Chocula. Lucky Charms. But at the very end of these advertisements, to which, of course, we were glued as well because there were cartoons and sugar involved, there would always be one obligatory shot that they would pan to a a beautiful breakfast table, and it was set with lots of healthy breakfast food, like fruit and protein and eggs and all these other things, and the bowl of cereal there in the middle. And they would add this tagline, right? This is part of a complete breakfast. And of course, as a kid, I just blocked that last bit out and I focused on the cereal, right? That was the complete breakfast, just the sugary stuff. Now, the upside to all of that indoctrination in my childhood was that I became a regular breakfast eater. I happily came to the breakfast table every morning and had a big bowl of sugary cereal. To this day, I don't usually skip breakfast. That's kind of an ingrained habit. And at the very least, in the mornings, I'll still pour myself, hopefully, a somewhat healthier bowl of cereal. But as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate that last bit of the commercial more. I've come to appreciate there might be something to that idea of a complete breakfast. So on a, on a good morning where I wake up on time, I'll start with a cup of coffee or tea, I'll heat up a slice of toast, I'll cook a few eggs, pour a glass of juice, maybe grab an actual piece of fruit, and then maybe have a small bowl of cereal there on the side. And that mixture of complete carbs and proteins does a lot to kind of balance out my hunger the rest of the day, right, to keep my body and my brain moving and and from becoming hangry halfway through the morning. Sometimes I think we also need to revisit the the habits or or the balance of our faith diet and what it is we are consuming. What is it we're feeding on in, in the practices and in the things we do together as God's people? And I think like like many other areas of our lives, we're prone to to hunger for and and to feel good about the the sugary bits, the feel-good bits. 
but we struggle to make time for the more substantial parts of, of what faith requires or what faith invites us into. We might eagerly look forward to, to the celebration of Sunday morning worship or to, to fellowship with, with certain friends of ours, only to, to run out of steam before we actually join God in his mission in the world. We may enjoy the singing of worship music, which is, which is renewing and refreshing, but we may struggle to make more substantial parts like prayer and the spiritual disciplines part of, of what we do. And so a question I'm asking of the book of James, and I think the book of James asks of, of us, is what does faith that's complete look like? How do we ensure that our faith is not immature, our faith is not left malnourished? How are we to pursue, as, as Ephesians says, the full stature of who Jesus is? How do we pursue that kind of faith? And I think the book of James is one of uh, the pieces of the New Testament that helps address the possibilities of our imbalanced diet. Reading the book of James feels like consuming real food for a change. There's, there's protein here, to be sure. But it's also a time-consuming practice. The book of James is not sugary sweet. It's not a feel-good book for the most part. But it contains themes, messages, wisdom that I think is vital for our faith to be holistic, for our faith to be balanced for our faith to be made complete. So James has much to say about how we weather seasons of testing and trial. James wants to tell us about what those seasons can develop within us. James has a lot to say about the justice of God and how faith has to, to lead us beyond mere words in, into action into the practice of mercy, into the practice of hospitality, the practice of real service. James has a lot to say about our speech, the words we use, and how our, our everyday words have the power to build up in amazing ways, but also how more often they work as, as weapons that destroy and tear down. In short, James challenges us to be people who don't just talk about faith, right, but, but whose faith moves on to, to yield living wisdom, to yield godly character, to grow God's righteousness in us. So let me pray for us this morning as we come just to the first four chapters of this book. Lord, I pray that you would open not just our minds, open our minds first, also open our hearts, but also then begin to open up practices, choices, actions, lived obediences to the word you have revealed to us here through James. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. In just a minute, I am going to, to jump into verse 1 here. 
But as we're hanging out in the book of James, because James is, is a practical, he's a hands-on kind of writer, I want to offer to us a, a practice to help us get more direct, more application-driven as well. So hopefully when you came in this morning, you got a, a back-to-school notebook that looks like this. Got these at Staples this week in the big back-to-school bins. So if you have one, great. Hopefully you have a pen as well. If you don't have one, can you shoot up your hand now if you'd like one? And we, uh, I think, have extras that the ushers could bring to you. So if you need one, just pop your hand up and we can get you a copy. Here's what I want you to, to do with this notebook. You can put uh, a title on the front and your name. But we are going to practice the next couple months handwriting out the, the scriptures of James. This is a, a practice that... I've heard and, and read about in different places a friend of mine, a guy named J.R. Briggs, who's written several books. He was an old classmate of mine in college, has challenged, uh, challenged us to, to take hold of as a discipline. And the idea is that if we attend to the words of Scripture, if we're careful to write them out slowly and prayerfully, we begin to, to notice and, and can, can pray into and apply the truth of Scripture in, in new ways. So you can, you can open up, you can write, if you'd like, the book of James on the opening page, or just James chapter 1. And I'll leave it up to you if you want to, to keep verse numbers if we go. You don't have to. Well, let me invite you to, to write out slowly and carefully the text. I'll put it up here on the screen. We're just doing four verses today. You'll have time in between to stop, so I, I think there should be plenty of time. As you go, if you want to, to highlight or to emphasize or even to illuminate with, with pictures the text that you're recording, please, please feel free to do that. But let's start with verse 1. Okay, so if you've got your pens, this is the book of James, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. As you're copying that down, I'll share a little bit about what we find in the first verse here. Like most letters, the, the letter or the book of James includes information about its authorship, its audience, and, and the context out of which it is being written. And verse 1 sort of hints at or gives us a little bit of data about all three of those things. The author of this letter identifies himself as James. And there are kind of a handful of options of, of who that James could be in the early church. But most historians agree that this particular James, the one writing this letter, shared a unique relationship with Jesus. We could argue that this James knew Jesus in, in a way, or maybe in a, in a better way than even the 12 apostles. Because this James is likely the brother of Jesus, the, the, the familial kind of brother, not just a spiritual brother. He grew up in the household of Jesus. He probably bunked with Jesus. He probably got Jesus' sandals when Jesus got too big and moved on to the next size. And like most brothers... James and Jesus probably had a, a conflicted relationship at times. In fact, we, we find in the Gospels that in the, the early days of Jesus' teaching ministry, as he be, became uh, someone who had a following and began to do miracles and, and to proclaim the kingdom of God, 
James didn't have a lot of faith in Jesus. He even teased or, or mocked Jesus about his claims. But in, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul recounts for us the, the historicity of the resurrection, in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that on, on the resurrection day, when Jesus conquers death, he reserves a special resurrection appearance for his little brother, James. And somewhere in, in the weeks or months after that appearance, the living faith, the trusting faith of James in his brother Jesus began to grow. And we know that James, from the book of Acts, became a key leader among the earliest church there in Jerusalem. He became known as James the Just or, or James the Righteous. He had a reputation of being someone who practiced what he preached. And so his, his self-description here in verse 1, that he is a slave or a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, is, is confirmed by historical accounts. We know that James was especially well-loved among the poor in Jerusalem, partly because of his insistence that, that the church minister to them and make space for them, but also partly because he was willing to speak out against injustices committed by the rich and the powerful leadership in Jerusalem. And it was actually James' outspokenness about some of these injustices that in 62 AD, about 30 years into the life of the church, James was arrested by the Sanhedrin, he was tried, and he was put to death, much like his older brother Jesus before him. The letter we have here, though, we think probably was written a good decade, maybe 15 years before James' martyrdom. And if that's the case, if it was written in the, the mid-40s, maybe, AD, that would likely make it the earliest piece of Christian literature in existence today. The, the earliest thing we have recorded. Before Paul started writing the epistles, before the evangelists actually got down to writing out the gospels, James collected this, this group of, of sermons or teaching or wisdom, and we're told that he sends it out to the Christian community of that day. And he describes that community at the end of verse 1 as the 12 tribes that were scattered among the nations. In the first couple decades of the church's life, we read in the book of Acts, they were mostly together there in and around Jerusalem. They worshiped together. They fellowshiped together. They lived together. They were in mission together. But somewhere into those first several years, the, the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the church, caused a great kind of turmoil and an exodus and scattering or, or diaspora of the early church, probably into the neighboring uh, kind of areas and communities and even further out into the Roman Empire. And so it's probably to these scattered brothers and sisters in verse 1 that James is writing. And he offers to them, verse 1, a, a very standard greeting, the, the Greek word kairen, or, or literally to, to rejoice. The word greetings here is, is the word to rejoice. But we have to go on to, to verses 2 through 4 to see what it is he, he wants to communicate. What is 
it that he's writing about? Why is he writing to them? And what is it that he'd like them to, to rejoice in or through? So if you've got your pens and your notebooks, copy with me verse 2. James says to these brothers and sisters, consider it pure joy, complete joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. And that word trials is, is one that James and I would contend the entirety of Scripture says is normative. It's not exceptional, it's normative for the Christian faith. The idea of trials are far more normative than I would care to, to believe or to let on. It's not a message I, I'm excited about preaching on. But, but that word in the Greek is, is the same word used of Israel during its wilderness wanderings in the Old Testament. It went through trials or testing. It's one used of when the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness to be tried or tested by, by the devil there in, in those 40 days of prayer and fasting. And so James speaks to the trials that his audience, these first Christians of, of the church in Jerusalem and beyond, might have encountered. And he says they are of many kinds. They're of differing kinds. He doesn't specify just one, but if we do a, do a quick survey of the context into which James is writing, we know that there are at least several possibilities that could have been in the background here. We know that the, the church in Jerusalem had limited financial resources. They were, were not a church of great uh, financial means. And so we find later in the book of Acts that, that there are gifts coming from the rest of the Greco-Roman world, the other churches that came into being to help support them. So they had financial trials. Along with that, they had trials of, of health and well-being. In and around probably the time James is writing, Judea went through one of the most severe famines in that century. People lost their lives because they didn't have enough grain to eat. That developed other kinds of sickness. Scholars would say that probably between 10 and 15 percent of, of any living population at that time was constantly facing death. Right? One in six people was, was facing death at any given time because of an illness. So they had health and, and, and trials related to their health. Thirdly, they almost certainly had relational tensions and trials. Right? Remember, these are the first followers of Jesus. They had been thrown out of the synagogue. They had been persecuted, in some cases stoned or arrested. Certainly there would have been tension in their extended families because of their faith. And fourthly, they were constantly experiencing political trials. Judea at this point in time during the life of James was constantly escalating in its political sort of conflict. Some of that conflict was between the Jews and the Romans. Much of that conflict was between the Jews themselves and, and over the differing approaches, whether they should kind of cozy up to Rome and, and vie for privilege that way, or whether they should violently resist Rome. And actually, in, in the years right after James dies, Judea enters into a massive civil war that ends in, in exile and destruction. 
So the audience this, this letter is written to had numerous trials which they faced. But given all that was on their plate, in verse 2, James's instruction is to consider it pure joy. Consider it total joy or, or complete joy. To be honest, when I read verse 2, it's, it's hard for me to, to sort of know what to do with that. It, it lands in a strange place. Because if you have ever been through a season of suffering, if you've walked with others through a season of depression, of, of poor health, of conflict, usually the last thing those people need to hear is, cheer up, right? Turn that frown upside down. That usually just doesn't go over very well with that person, those persons. And so I think there's sort of a, a mental check most of us do and say, is James sending like the equivalent of a really insensitive greeting card in the first century? Is the card say, I hear things are hard, just keep smiling, everybody? Well, I don't, I don't actually think that's what James is saying. And uh, a former professor of mine, commentator Miriam Kamal, and Craig Blomberg in their, in their commentary on James, argue that James, quote, does not support the idea that a Christian must smile all the time, or that James desires to lecture us here about how we are to feel in the midst of trials. What they go on to say is that the word here in verse 2, the, the verb, to consider, right, consider in pure joy, is less connected with our feeling, less connected with our emotional response, and more connected to, to how we think about, how we reflect upon, how we assess and respond to our circumstances. I think it's an invitation to reflect on what's happening deeper within us. And so to give James the benefit of the doubt here that that he's looking deeper within. I want to follow through on his line of thinking that, that, that spills over into verses 3 and 4. Because they're really what complete this statement in verse 2. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Write out verses 3 and 4 with me. Because, James says, because you know that the testing of your faith, same word there, testing or trial. I'm sorry, that's a slightly different word, but similar idea. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Verse 4, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We're told to consider it pure joy, verse 3, because of something we can know, something we can see, something we can reflect on that's happening in the midst of those trials. I think when I've gone through difficult seasons in my own life, what usually makes them particularly difficult is when, when I, I'm experiencing a difficulty, but I don't have a sense of, of why. What's the meaning of that? It doesn't seem to have significance. I think I've shared with many of you times in the past year or year and a bit where I have been 
deeply discouraged or, or tired or, or weary. And I remember back to a time, I think we were about six months into COVID, and I, I went for a prayer hike one morning. And I think as I was praying, I, I was wrestling with the trials that we probably all found ourselves in the middle of, but also with the question of, of significance, of purpose. What is this doing? Is this growing anything in me? Am I growing in any particular way in this season? And I think for the better part of the first hour of that hike, as I thought about that, as I prayed that, all I heard was, was silence. Couldn't really put my finger on anything that I felt like was, was improving, was growing, was developing in me through that six months. I could enumerate the trials. I felt plenty tested. But I couldn't see the value of that season of testing. Finally, as I, I stopped for a while and I sat to pray, sort of gently heard the word resilience come into my head. And I felt a, a kind of nudge from the Holy Spirit as I was praying, saying, I am growing you in your capacity for resilience. And my first thought was, I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want to grow in that anything but that. Who chooses to grow in resilience? But as James underscores here in verse 3, there is a gift that God can develop in times of trial and testing. And that gift is, is resilience or, or perseverance, as the NIV has it here. In fact, it probably requires testing, requires difficulty, requires these, these, these challenging seasons in order for that gift to be developed. The testing of your faith produces perseverance. There, there's a causation there. And so what is the value then? What's the significance? What's the meaning of perseverance? Well, as James explains in verse 4, the gift of perseverance actually isn't an end unto itself. Instead, I think perseverance is, is like a tool. Perseverance is like a resource. Perseverance, he says in verse 4, must be invited to finish its work in us. If we just get tough, that's not enough, James says. Trials aren't just meant to, to produce callous in us. Instead, perseverance is, is that thing which enables us to move through a hard season, to sustain us, to, to keep us going through that desert place. But perseverance is meant to, to bring us to a kind of goal, a, a further finish line, a further horizon. And James describes that horizon beyond perseverance as maturity, as completeness as the wholeness, the deepening of our faith. The value of perseverance is how it sustains us through a season of trial so that God might beautifully temper and complete and mature us through that season. Strengthen our faith so that, verse 4, our faith is not lacking in anything. 
in his book, Leadership for a Time of Pandemic. Former pastor and seminary professor Todd Bolsinger likens the stress of trials to uh, the heat and hammering of a blacksmith's forge. And I'm sure that's not a new analogy. We've probably all thought of that or heard that before. But Bolsinger says, the stress of trials really aren't useful to us. They're not, they're not helpful or productive in any way unless they become focused on a formational purpose. Right? The stress of trials have to be focused on a formational purpose, he says. And he, he points out how in a blacksmith's workshop, what's unique among that trade, both now and, and even in the ancient world, is that blacksmiths use their forge. They use all the heat and the stress and the hammering of their forge in the first place to make their own tools. Right? The tools a blacksmith uses have to be forged in his own or her own furnace first. And then they take those tools that have been hammered and forged and heated and reheated, and then they can use that tool Bolsinger says, to ply their craft for the good of others. He says, in the same way as God grows us in perseverance, as God grows us in resilience, as he brings us through trials, but we remain focused on a formational purpose, he says, what gets hammered into us become the very attributes that we can then offer to others. Right? What God brings or forges in us through those seasons become tools by which we ply hope and mercy and encouragement to others who are in the midst of that furnace as well. So I want to finish this morning not by telling you how to apply these verses, but by inviting for, for you to, to think on them to walk through them in your own way and in your own space. And as you, you think about them, I'd invite you to take that scripture journal that you've just recorded the first four verses in. And here's what I'd like you to do. In, in the coming week, whether it's every morning when you wake up or in the evening just before you go to bed, maybe at least three or four times this week, to pick up that journal and maybe move, you know, leave the first 10 or 15 pages for copying out the book of James without interruption. We'll, we'll add to it every week. But then start an entry somewhere, maybe page 15 or so, you know, Monday or, or Wednesday morning or Thursday afternoon, whenever you pick it up again. And copy out this text. Copy it out again. Or copy out one verse or a couple of these verses. And as you copy it, begin, begin to pray it. Maybe say it out loud. Recite it as you write. And as you're copying and recopying that scripture throughout this week, here are a few questions I'd invite you, maybe in the space below those recopyings, to, to just write out or, or to journal out. It could be a sentence or two. It could be a paragraph. If you need three pages, go for it. We all process differently. But number one, what trials are you facing now or have you recently come through? Let me push you to, to dig into that a little bit. I would venture to say there is not a person in this room or listening at home that has not come through a trial in the past 18 months. And you've probably got a few of them. So what are they? 
And let me invite you to express honestly at least some point this week how you have felt in those circumstances. You can be honest here. You probably haven't rejoiced your way through each and every trial. I have not. I can, I can testify to that. But I think it's important for, for us to frame that, to express that honestly. Express what you have felt in the midst of those trials. But then on the same day or maybe the next day when you rewrite these things, think prayerfully, think slowly about how the Holy Spirit would consider you, invite you to consider what's being formed in you. What formational purpose has he had in mind? Or maybe he still has in mind. Maybe that work is still ongoing. Under the the duress and stress of those circumstances, is there something God is forming more deeply within you? What would that thing be? If you don't know, maybe write a brief prayer asking for perseverance, asking for strength. If you find yourself still in that season of testing, that, that desert place, then make that your entry point. Right? Write out that prayer. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm weary. I'm not rejoicing. I need help. And begin to let these verses do their work in us. Receive them as wisdom from James. Let me pray for us as we, as we head into the week ahead. Lord Jesus, would you make your word living and active? Would you write it through our hands and on our hearts? And Lord, we pray that this week and this month would be the furthering of your work in us. Lord, that our faith would go on to develop the strength of perseverance and that that perseverance would continue to lead us into maturity and into a faith that is lacking no good thing. We invite the the assistance, the 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 ministry, the the nudging of your Holy Spirit in all of that work. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.